This is 400 Plus. I'm Mark Sims. My guest is Akil Parker. Akil Parker is an educator from the great state of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Professor Parker. Good morning. Thanks for having me back on. No, I, I'm tickled. I'm just so happy. Now, before we solve the crime problem in Philadelphia, we're going to solve all the crime problem about 10 to 12 minutes. <laughs> but before we do that, uh, tell us a little bit about Akil Parker. Okay, so I'm a math teacher. I'm a math professor at Cheney University, a historically known HBCU. I also have a company called All This Math, where I'm attempting to rebrand mathematics um, as it relates to the black community. So we'll start to see math as a tool, um, a viable tool that we can actually use to solve our problems, our micro problems and our, our problems on a micro level. And instead of something to try to avoid or us to run away from or be scared of, you know, whether it's us as parents or whether, you know, it's our children when they're in uh, these public school, charter school or private school classrooms. And one of the ways in which I do that is through private math tutoring. And also I have an online resource. I have a YouTube channel where I provide culturally responsive and culturally relevant math instruction for you know black people whether it's for teachers that want support for their lessons in their classrooms or whether it's for homeschooling parents or whether it's for parents that want to be able to brush up on their skills or learn some things they never knew before so that they can help their own children with homework and it's also for students that want to understand what's going on in, in the classroom and that might need some more individualized instruction and you know one of the things that's very popular to discuss is the lack of black male teachers in public and charter schools, well, I, I'm attempting to solve their problem because I'm a black male teacher, and you can have free access to me at any time as long as you have internet access. So that's that's basically what I get into, and I'm also a father of three, and you know my children are a great motivator in terms of the work I do to try to enhance our community and and do what uh, you know what the late Jacob Carruthers used to often say is help us to get out of this mess that we're in as African people. And let me, let me chime in into uh, the crime problem in Philadelphia, which is uh, similar to Chicago. Uh, some people think we're not in, in that mess because I don't live in that neighborhood where that mess go on. And so I, I ain't a part of that mess and y'all in the mess and not me. So, um, Akil Parker, Professor Parker, if you were mayor of the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, how would you dramatically reduce crime, violence, murder, murders in African-American neighborhoods. So if I, would, if I were a mayor, I would probably do some things that probably aren't being done by any mayors in large urban areas right now or may not have even been thought of by a lot of mayors and their support staff in large urban areas right now. I would first want to sit down with some, uh, some data scientists and some statisticians because again, you know, mathematics is my background and I would really want to parse out and unpack and get a much better, clearer understanding of how much violence is really taking place, how much gun violence is really taking place. And I also want to take into consideration things as such as, you know, the fact that we're in a pandemic. Um, oftentimes in the media in the past few years, when I've heard conversations around gun violence, they never... I never hear any conversation about the fact that, you know, it is a pandemic. So it is actually to be expected that violence would increase naturally anyway and be due to those environmental conditions being so strained, there being increased unemployment, um, joblessness, um, less income. So, you know, people have to survive. So people may resort to 
theft and robbery and different types of crime in order to provide for themselves and provide for their children. So I would want to like really have some serious conversations with some with some data scientists and some statisticians and look at some real data and also make that data available to the public. So it's not just, you know, people scrolling on Instagram and looking at memes and, and really looking at charts that they don't really understand anyway. Because, again, most people of their own admission do not have a comfort and a strong understanding of mathematics. So when they see charts and data and graphs and percentages and everything being thrown at them on social media, a lot of times they don't even know. They don't know what they're looking at anyway. Right. So they don't know what they're looking at, but then they just end up, you know, swallowing up this information and then regurgitating it and not really knowing what, what's really going on. So that's one thing I would do. And I would try as a mayor, I would think that of a large urban area, at least people would listen to what I have to say because I would have a platform, right? So, you know, at least that's that might be one of the main things, just to get people to start, some people at least, to start thinking differently about things. But that's one of the first things I would do because I would want to have have hard empirical evidence and empirical data about what's actually going on so that we can, you know, begin to try to target the problem. Next thing I would do, I would take a, take a, uh, um, um, under, from the, some influence from the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And I would start talking about and trying to get people familiar with France Fanon, a great Pan-Africanist, um, great psychiatrist and revolutionary, um, anti-colonial struggler, France Fanon, born in the island of Martinique in the Caribbean and did a lot of work in Algeria, fighting with the people in Algeria um, against the French. And I would, I would want our people to look at his work, Direction of the Earth, because in the rest of the earth, he talks a lot about violence and violence as a concept um, and how, how violence affects colonized people, because we are, in fact, a colonized people. Right. Um, this is neocolonialism that we live in. And I think one of the problems is that the, the term neocolonialism itself is not even in our general vocabulary. But we are colonized people. Um, when we talk about gentrification, gentrification is actually a euphemism for settler colonialism. Right. It's a way to it's a it's an aspect of colonization. And we have always we've been colonized ever since we've been, you know, in this nation of the United States. So I would like for us to kind of think about violence differently because then we might start, you know, looking at things a little differently. Because we wanna if we wanna come up with solutions to a problem, we have to first understand the problem better. So I would as a mayor, I would be standing up, giving press conferences, you know, pulling out my copy of Wretched of the Earth by France Fanon and reading passages from it. And then seeing how those can apply to things that are happening in North Philly, things that are happening in South Philly, things that are happening in Germantown and, and so on and so forth. And again, this is something that the news media, you know, in Philadelphia is not talking about. I don't know a lot of these news reporters have even heard of France Fanon. Um, but our people, the people of, of Philadelphia definitely need to be. I know the brothers and sisters that were members of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Philadelphia back in the 1960s and 70s. They were familiar with France Fanon. Uh, people such as Mumia Abu-Jamal and and others, um, Reggie Shell, people like that. And I think we need to get back to that. So that's something else I would do. Another thing I would do is I would create like a tax force where we really have kind of have serious sit down man to man conversations with the brothers that are, that are pulling the trigger and actually shooting the people and find out, well, you know, get to the bottom of it. You know, why did you do that? You know, why did you feel that that was the only, that was a viable uh, uh, um, response in this situation that you were in? Because I don't think that there's a lot of, due to this idea that, uh, that we kind of generally accept in the pathology and the inhumanity of black people, I think that when there are, there are murders and there is violence, that we kind of just accept it as, oh, well, that's just black people being black people. It's no need to have a conversation. We just need to build more jails so we can lock more of them up. 
We just need to have more cops so we can lock more of them up. And there's never a conversation about, okay, well, why did that happen? You know, why did you feel that that was appropriate behavior? And a lot of it is, a lot of it is, again, due to economics, um, financial issues, um, that's a lack of uh, desperation, but a lot of it is due to just, you know, rearing and just how people, you know, view themselves. There's a lot of anti-blackness. So a lot of the anti-blackness is that self-directed becomes projected outward. So this desire to, and this is something that, you know, Bobby Wright talked about and other African-centered psychiatrists and psychologists talked about often is like this idea of projecting outward feelings of internalized anti-blackness. Like, I really want to kill myself, but because of my blackness, because I've accepted that blackness is my problem because of how this society has treated me because of my blackness, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to kill somebody that looks like me or reminds, my, reminds me of myself, right? So a lot of that happens. So, um, and a lot of that has to be addressed at an earlier age, right? At a, at a, at a, much, at a much earlier age, right? Um, when the, when these the brothers and brothers or, you know, or maybe the sisters that are, you know, in their twenties that are pulling triggers that are shooting people and killing people, um, those ideas are, they begin to germinate when they're in elementary school of that age, when they're in middle school. So this is really long-term work that has to be done. And a lot of the adults, we have to be honest with ourselves, a lot of the adults may not be able to be quote unquote safe, but we can try to develop a society where that would be safer and more humane 10 years from now by placing more emphasis and providing more care for young people, for, you know, second graders, third graders, kindergartners, and having some different conversations with them about how they should view themselves, how they should view their community, you know, who they are, what their goals in life should be, and also by providing resources for their parents right now and for them so that they can have certain goals and attempt to live in certain ways going forward. Another thing I would address, I wouldn't take the role of um, uh, Eric Adams in, in New York City and just, you know, flat out just come out and make this blanket statement and just say, just, you know, ban drill music. I do think drill music is problematic. It does contribute to the maintenance of these problems. I don't think drill music created these problems initially. Um, I don't think gangster rap music created these problems initially, but it did at the same time it does at the same time help to maintain these problems. I would also like to have more conversations, just as if, just as I would use my platform to have conversations about France Fanon and a lot of his concepts and ideology and analysis around violence among colonized people. I would want us to talk about how, you know, on the one hand, you know, if your little cousin or your child or somebody in your neighborhood, your friend gets shot and, and killed and we cry about it, but then the next minute, we're at a party dancing to black-on-black violence music. And I believe that that is a genre of music. I think black-on-black violence does, in fact, exist. I don't think it exists in the context of there not being white-on-white violence. I think there's all types of intra-racial violence. I think there's Chinese-on-Chinese violence. There's Hispanic-on-Hispanic violence. There's Arab-on-Arab violence. There are all types of violence. So black-on-black violence does, in fact, exist. But if I, you know, a lot of, I want to know, you know, how people feel. Like, how do you feel after you listen to this song? Does this song make you want to kill a black man? Because I know I'm being, being totally honest with you. I'm 42 years old. When I'm riding in the car, and I listen to some of that music sometimes. It makes me want to kill black people. So, and I've even thought to myself, I said, man, you know, if I was a, a neo-Nazi or a skinhead or a Ku Klux Klan member and I was about to, you know, go out on some, uh, and do some work and try to terrorize some black people, I would turn on a lot of this uh, music from a lot of these very popular commercial rappers. 
because they're talking about killing black people over a beat. And they're making it sound cool. And they're making it sound decent. So I think that these are the conversations that we have to have about these, these contradictions because, again, as a lot of people like to push back on this because they don't want to hold rappers accountable because the rappers are their heroes because the rappers made it out of the hood and they think the rappers are rich now and that's their goal. That's a lot of our people's goals, unfortunately, only. Um, so we kind of live vicariously through these rappers. So it's like, oh, you can't say anything negative about the rapper because the rapper's my hero and I want to be like him when I grow up, right? And he made it or she made it. We have to be more honest and more mature. And we have to man up and woman up and be willing to call a spade a spade and say, listen, when you listen to this music, let's break it down. We can break down the lyrics. We can break down like an like a essay, like we do an essay in an English class. They say, what is he telling you to do? Because the rapper is the teacher. You know, when I was, um, in, you know, encountering my students, you know, listening to their, their AirPods or their AirPods or whatnot, and listening to music in my, in my class, I would always ask them, who are you listening to and what are they teaching you? What are they telling you to do? What are they making sound cool? And a lot of times the rappers, you know, they, they, they know the script. The whole script is, oh, I'm just, they, they tell us, they're just telling their own personal experience. Yeah, okay, cool. But you're not really telling your own personal experience because you pick and choose what experience you want to put on a record. Because you might not tell about the experience about how you was young and you got jumped and beat up, you know. You tell the experiences that you think are going to make you look favorable, right? So I just want us to also think about that, you know, the propaganda that we digest as a people, the cultural products that we digest as a people. And if the commercial rap music, um, just like TV shows and just like movies, but the difference between commercial rap music and the TV shows and the movies is that a, a typical song might be three minutes long, and a child might listen to that over and over again 30 times in a day. Every day for like a week, two weeks, three weeks, and then there's a lot of songs that are mixed in with different beats, but that kind of have the same idea, same gist to them. A movie is two hours long. You're going to watch that movie one time, and you're not gonna, you may not watch that movie every single day. A TV show might be a half hour, might be an hour long. It might have those themes, but you're not watching it back to back to back to back, typically. So the music has more, I believe, has more of an impact because of its frequency of digestion. Let me say this real quick. You know why I had you on the show? I can let you roll forever because you're, you're a professor and you're fantastic. Uh, you're 22. Oh, no, no, no. Let me do the math. Uh, you, you, you're the math professor. <laughs> no, you're 18 years my junior. Yeah, I'm 18 years older than you. And that's why I had you on the show because I've heard this talk 20, 30 years ago. Right. And some people don't want to hear that black stuff no more because we're more diverse than what we used to be. There were Negroes that couldn't live in that town, but now they live in that town. So a lot of the lower income African-Americans, as you well know, have. And I see this on many of my, my podcasts. They have been abandoned. They say, forget those Negroes. It's a lost cause. It's generational. You're not going to stop it. So most of us wash our hands, throw up our hands and we move on. And so I always ask people, will we have this conversation 30 years, 30 years from now? Or we're going to say we, we're going to say we are going to stop it. And how are we going to stop it? I know it's the same discussion we had 30 years ago, maybe in 50, 60 years ago. The bourgeois, you know, Franklin Frazier wrote the black bourgeoisie, black bourgeoisie, what, 1957? So we right. have the black bourgeoisie. We still have them um, in modern day version. We have the, we have the pole, you know, Polish Negroes or the low income Negroes, if you will. They still there. We never seem to really, because I know why. And if you listen to any Amos Wilson, reading Amos Wilson books, anybody else like that, you know why. But how do we get 
how do we get this ball moving, Professor? That's the last question. How do we get this ball moving, Professor, so we won't, we could, like here in Chicago, and the same as Philly, we got like 2.5 murders in Chicago every day, and most of them are black folks, right? And my goal, or a lot of people go, is to get that down to maybe two a week. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because you're going to have some murders in, in, in Chicago or in America. We're just a crazy-ass country. Uh, but the point is that how do we stay? We're going to stop this. No more BS. No more excuses. We're going to stop this crime in places like Philadelphia, Chicago, and there are smaller, um, you know, uh, what you call suburbs, rural areas where black people kill each other. How are we going to stop this? Are we going really going to stop this, Professor Parker? Well, as a mayor, again, like one of the goals of having those actual conversations, face to face, man to man, with uh, with the actual shooters, or as the young people say, the steppers, right, is to say, okay, well, basically this was a this was a drug turf battle, or basically this was. Um, you know, and one of, one of your issues is, you know, your financial insecurity or your economic insecurity. So then I say, you know, if I have the power to do that as mayor, I'm like, okay, we got we to gotta put jobs, put, put jobs where somebody can have a livable wage, you know, in this community. We got to create job opportunities. Um, and we got to market those job opportunities. And when, and when the people start talking about, you know, I'm too cool to do that, or I'm too cool to do this, then we, you know, it's really just a propaganda issue. You got to have strong propaganda to make that brother feel like, no, you're not too cool to do this. You're actually not. You're actually too cool to be doing what you might otherwise be doing, because that's probably gonna get you killed anyway. Um, so propaganda comes again. We're back to, back to that concept of propaganda. Um, I think a lot of the propaganda around a lot of the so-called solutions um, is not strong enough to make a make a direct impact. And things have to be propagandized. Maybe you know need to hire some 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 marketers. You know the same way the same way you know these large Fortune 500 corporations hire marketing teams. You know, and pay millions of dollars to basically influence the thought processes of millions of people, actually billions of people world globally and worldwide. Um, you know, we need to do the same thing if we're serious about this. If we're serious about this, because a lot of a lot of a lot of crime, you know, in a capitalist society, there's going to be crime, right? There's, there's going to be crime because capitalism requires, at least monopoly capitalism requires poverty, requires that there be poor people. Somebody's got to be. It's got to be a hierarchy. Somebody's got to be at the bottom of the totem pole. But the person, people at the bottom of the totem pole, which is going to be the majority, they still got to eat. So then, and this, this is why we can't, to your point, we can't abandon the poor blacks. The bourgeois, they, they shouldn't really want to abandon the poor blacks. And this is why I have, like, so much respect for a lot of, uh, you know, revolutionaries from the past that didn't have to do that. You know, King was, King, King is, a, is a great example. King was middle class. King could have just, you know, graduated from Morehouse, came home back to Atlanta, you know, just kind of chilled out. You know, inherited his dad's church, or just you know did his did his thing in Montgomery, Alabama, and you know been the preacher at that church, and then you know waited until you know his time to come back to Atlanta and just you know did his middle class black thing, and been as uh, a lot of people say, um, you know as they are you know back then and even to this day been a pork chop preacher, you know and uh, you know collected the tithe money and put gas in his Cadillac and all that, and you know he could have did that, but he chose not to, he chose to put himself on the front line. And, you know, but he didn't have to do it. There have been a lot of people historically that, you know, decided, you know, they, they had a more communal outlook on the world. And they said, okay, it's bigger than me. It's not just about me, me being comfortable. It's not just about my immediate family being comfortable. It's about the collective. It's about the entire community. So what difference that, like, they really do believe in that idea that, you know, what difference does it make if I'm, quote, unquote, comfortable and my children are, quote, unquote, comfortable if there's millions of people starving in the street? Because one thing you got to consider is this: if I'm comfortable, but people out here are starving and they see that I'm comfortable, then I'm at I'm I'm at risk anyway. 
So they might come, try to come take what I got anyway. So it really behooves us and is in, our, is in our best interest to try to build community and try to provide, you know, and not, not, not in terms of just giving handouts, but in terms of but trying to create a different type of in- infrastructure and, uh, and provide some real systemic change so that everybody can be able to, you know, embrace their full humanity and live, you know, in a more decent and comfortable manner. And that's gonna that's gonna take work, but that's work that, you know, more of us have to sign up for. And that's where that's where education comes into play because young people from a young age have to be trained in terms of the value of that on a daily basis. Like schools, one of the pro- one of the many problems with you know the public and charter schools and private schools is that they they teach this idea of rugged individualism. You know, I got mine, you got to get yours. This whole, like, no, I'm out for me, I'm out for self. It's not about the community. It's just about me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get the money. I'm going to become an entrepreneur, whatever, whatever route you take. But it's all about me and my family, like, like Amos Wilson talked about. Um, familyism. There's a lot of people, you know, the individualism, we, a lot of people can recognize that individualism is a problem. But then you got these guys that are talking about, well, I'm just trying to take care of me and my, my circle. And that's it. Well, that's still just an extension of rugged individualism. It doesn't it doesn't benefit the larger community, right? So we got to like really teach these young people that the goal is for the collective to win, for the community to win, right? And that that just that gets us back into the African cultural practices, like I is we, right? Like you know when when I'm when I'm when I'm doing when this person's doing self care, taking care of the community is a part of self care because you are part of the community. You are indistinguishable in many ways from the community. So that's what we have to get back to. And that's what more of us just have to start talking about. And these are the things that I try to throw in. This is the type of uh, propaganda of my own that I try to throw in on the YouTube channel that I want everybody to go to in order to get math lessons and also get um, um, reinforcement of certain cultural values and, and certain cultural ideals, you know, when I'm, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm having these conversations about mathematics. Well, Professor uh, Akil Parker, I can talk to you forever because you're just a great, great professor. The show is over. Thank you for being my guest on 400 Plus. I appreciate that, brother.